Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cloud-Based Mayhem. I have a really cool, very interesting show for you today with Boss Van Dusen. I don't, I'm sure I'm butchering his last name. I know I've got his first name right because I had to ask him about that. But Boss has developed, has been an instructor for more than 10 years, been flying for almost 30. He is his favorite flying partner is his father who taught him how to fly. They still fly together all the time. And just a really fun and interesting individual, but his his passion is VR coaching. He's got uh, a company called Flight Coach, and we find out what he's teaching people how to learn when there's no risk through VR. And really interesting platform, something he's super passionate about, and something I hadn't heard of. And he sent me a YouTube video of how it all works and I watched it and went yeah okay we need to have a talk so we talk about his his past and his history and some of what he saw were shortcomings in teaching and of course in aviation uh, shortcomings could be harsh on participants trying to learn and thought that there must be a way where we could retain more pilots and have them be able to learn a lot of these things that are pretty easy in the beginning, but like Russ Ogden says, you know, paragliders are easy to fly, but hard to fly well. So getting people through those early humps, but the, the coaching is also very relevant for pilots who have a lot more hours as well, and is only getting better by the day. So this was a lot of fun, and I think you're gonna find it really interesting. Before we get to the talk, just a real quick bit of housekeeping, uh, a couple of events I'm running this fall. The first is the Red Rocks Wide Open, September 10th to 17th. The registration opens for that April 1st, and it's a race to goal seven-day comp. That's the U.S. Nationals. I believe will soon shortly be Canadian Nationals as well. We're going to firm that up this week, and a pre-PWC. So, great way to get letters. We've got a lot of international pilots coming, and. It's an incredible venue and one of the most beautiful places in the world. And at that time of year, you can still expect to get super tall, a nice place to have oxygen. And there's a lot more information. It'll be on, the registration will be on Air Tribune. You can find it there for just, just search for Red Rocks Wide Open or uh, in various other places. And the second event, which I'm really excited about, will be the, the second uh, X Red Rocks, which is a three-day stage. I can fly race this last year was a huge success really fun and this year we've got a bunch of the x-alps european legends coming over and also giving presentations patrick von cannell who was second last year uh, aaron duragati the italian stallion and paul kuschelbauer are both coming between the two of them they have 11 uh, red bull x-alps races under their belt and a whole bunch of other stuff dolomiti superman and our superfly and the dolomiti man and the x-peer and a bunch so uh, they're both giving a presentation Tuesday night before the race and we've got Tangi Renault Good who has the, the record right now for the most vertical climb in a single day and flown back down. He crushed that last summer with 13,320 meters, I believe. He also won the UAA uh, Hike and Fly Championships this year and an absolute beast. Uh, my buddy Tim Roaches, a test pilot for Niviak, is coming over. He's been doing really well in the last few years in the Borns to Fly and other events. So. And we've got a few other big names that I'll be announcing again shortly. So pretty exciting stuff. So check that out, xredrocks.com. The application period for that closes April 20th. So right around the corner. Hope to see a bunch of you there. Enjoy the show with Boss. Cheers.
boss, it's uh, great to have you on the show. We've been trying this for a long time. I say that to all my guests. I, say, I, might, I must not be very good at scheduling <laughs> things, but uh, I know you're, you're working hard over there on your virtual reality coaching project. So we're going to get into that. But I thought a really cool place to start was with something you just mentioned when we were chatting there before we started recording. You've been flying with your best friend who happens to be your dad. That's a cool relationship for 27 years. Uh, let's yep, start yep, there. Man. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, first of all, stoked to be here. I'm uh, very happy with, uh, with us doing this. Um, yeah, I've been flying with my dad for 27 years. Man, that's a long time. I actually started with hang gliding. You know, my dad, he's a skydiver originally, you know, making formation jumps. Um, he always was into the... the the, the, the high energy um, of, of, of the jump and of the free fall. And he actually mm. got suspended over a, a, a cornfield and he asked his instructor why did it took me so long to get down. What the hell was that? And then the instructor <laughs> told him, that, yeah, that's a thermal. They're, they're like very nasty. They make you take longer to get down, takes longer to get back into the airplane. So he said, no, I want more of that. What, what, what can I do to get more of that? Uh, so he got into hang gliding and I, I went with him, you know, from the age of like eight, nine, I, I went with him, uh, watched him fly. And um, I made my first flight on a hang glider uh, at the age of 12. Wow. Was, 11, 12. Yeah, those were different uh, a times. A tandem or solo? No, that was a solo flight. Yeah. Wow. It was, cool. was just a, a ground winch uh, flight. And from that moment on, you know, I, I was hooked with flying. What was it like for your dad to get you into it at such a young age? I mean, he obviously knew the risks back then. Yeah. Did he have any reservations or did your mom? Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was, that, that's, we can talk very long about that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> let me give you the, let me give you the, sh the short lay of the land. I, I think he, he was, he was convinced that it would be, uh, would be fun to do this, that it would be exciting and that, that I would be, you know, being the uh, responsible young man that I was, that I would be able to do with this, to deal with this in a in a relatively safe way. One of the things he did to actually keep me safe is he told me, "Son, you can only get your license. You know, we have different licensing levels, but like let's say this, the first level is the the uh, intro level, and then you." are able to make some turns with a hang glider under the supervision of an instructor. And with the second level, you can fly locally without an instructor being present. And he told me, uh, I will not let you uh, fly unsupervised and, and do all the practical examinations before you've done your theoretical examination. You yeah. have to do that first, which was not like an official rule. Most people, they first got all their, uh, all their tasks done. Uh, and then did the theoretical examination and, and studying at the end as like a, a, a last thing to do to cross off the list. But he said, no, I really want you to study hard to have this as a basis for everything that you learn in practice. So actually that meant doing stuff in reverse, learning a, about a lot of things that were um, not being offered to me in, 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 in the actual flying, in the practicality of flying at that moment in my, in my mm. career. And that made me... Um, that really helped me uh, a lot. It saved my life actually once. Yeah. Wow. Let's yeah. hear about that. That's <laughs> you want to hear that story too? Yeah. Yeah. I was 15 years old and we were flying in, uh, in the mountains in France and I was still in, in training to get, my, uh, to, get my, to get to my second level of licensing. Uh, and I was standing there with the instructor ready, ready to go. Uh, on that ramp, you know, the, the horrible ramps that the hang gliders take off from. 
uh, it's, it's a weird thing when you come to think of it. You know, when a hang glider commits to takeoff in, in that sort of a condition, you start running, you commit to takeoff before you have full control over your glider. Yeah. Be- because you got to have proper airflow over the wing to, to really be able to steer it. So the, w- the, the wind sock was like dangling down and then the wind was coming towards us a little bit and was dangling down again. And then we had some wind from the back, some tailwind, which is obviously horrible. And the instructor uh, told me, okay, boss, are you ready? Yes, I said, go, go, go. And I, and I started running and then I was halfway down the ramp. And he told me, no, 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 stop, 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 because there was a tailwind. Jeez. And because I did all this studying, I knew this guy is talking complete nonsense, you know, yeah. because it's, there is one golden rule when you start running with a hang glider down a ramp, whatever happens, you don't stop. Yeah, commit. You have to commit because else you can't stop like 30 kilos on top of your head, you know, it, it's, it's dragging you down. So you got to run into it and get uh, make the most out of it. So I got airborne and, um, well, one wing was, was stalling. So I was, I was tilting uh, towards the mountain and I knew this, this is it's not going to be good. It was like a, a granite wall, 700 meters high. <laughs> and I saw like a, a bunch of trees on, on, the, um, on, on, the, on the slope. And then again, the theory came to mind. And I, I had like such clarity at that moment in time. And I thought, okay, I can do two things now. I can go with my urge to steer away from this, this rock face. And then I don't know what's going to happen. Probably I don't have enough airspeed and I'm going to crash somewhere where I, where I cannot aim at where I'm crashing. Mm. Or I can go full speed on and uh, try to regain control and steer it into those trees at like maximum speed. And I decided that, the, uh, that option B was the best option. And I'm convinced that because of that uh, choice by me at that moment in time, and my dad's choice to have me focus on the theoretical aspects of flying, I'm able to talk to you now. Because if I would have did you, did you hit a, the trees or did you get so much speed that you were able to turn towards the hill no, and away from it again? I was and, able and fly to get away. enough speed to get, yeah. um, to get um, control authority with the glider, but that meant really facing, uh, facing the rocks and steering towards the trees. So that th- those went in tandem um, and this allowed me to get... Um, to crash where I wanted to crash, so to speak. Yeah. So I flew into the trees and I, I don't know if you've ever seen the leading edge of, of a hang glider. That's a pretty sturdy, um, there's a pretty sturdy beams. They were all broken in like six pieces. There was really nothing left of the, of the glider. And I only had a, uh, a mild concussion and a, uh, a big, uh, well, flesh wound on, on my arm. Man, Fast thinking, dude. That's that's a that was nice. I, I can I can visualize that whole thing. Yeah, yes, I had a, I saw a very similar thing uh, when I was getting going when I was just learning, and it was also under instruction. We were and I've talked about this on the show, but we were on a ridge outside of Annecy on a really bad day. Tons of overdevelopment, a lot of cells coming through, and so Annecy was just going to be way too windy and too exposed. And so we went down to this place where the instructor thought we could, we could kind of ridge soar between these cells coming through. And it just wasn't a flying day, you know? And, uh, one of the, one of the pilots who was pretty low hours, I think he was 50 hours or something. And he didn't really have very fast descent techniques. 
got, you know, flu and we were all rich soaring. And then it was really clear the cell was coming and a couple of us just got lucky and bombed out uh, and were on the ground when this, this thing hit. And when Ooh. it hit, the instructor and my buddy Bruce, who supported me in the first couple of X-Alps, kind of got blown over this thing and were able to run and land and yeah. in front of this gust front. And this, this other pilot, just all he had in his toolkit was big ears. And, Ooh. you know, so he put in big ears when this gust front hit and it was just like watching a butterfly in a windstorm. It was yeah, it terrifying. And, yeah. uh, and we were all on the ground and, you know, in, in, at the, at the time when I was watching it, I thought, ditch it into the trees, ditch it into the trees, ditch it into the trees. You know, that was, he had this beautiful slope behind him that was this really nice canopy and branches almost all the way to the ground, you know? So it was one of those things where he could have just bat, you know, it would have been suicide to fly towards it. It was blowing really, really hard. But if he just let the wind blow him into the trees and, you know, it probably would have busted the wing up, you know, maybe would have broken an arm or something, but, but for the most part, you know, again, retrospect, looking at it in hindsight, you know, but as I'm watching this, I was thinking, okay, what would I do? What would I do? What would I do? And, uh, the trees are your best option right now. Yeah, and, yeah. and what he tried to do was stick it was tried to land and about 50 feet off the ground. He, he totally, his wing went parachutal and he didn't recover it and hit the ground really hard. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. He, he survived, but massive injuries and had to be air flighted out and stuff. Oh. And it was really a good instructional thing at his price, obviously. I mean, obviously it would have been better. Not, none of that had ever happened, but you know, it was interesting to watch from the ground to, to, you know, like in your incident that there's the shit's going to hit the fan in this sport at some point. And, you know, it's really just a matter of thinking really fast, you know, what are, what's option A, B, C, D yeah. right now and yeah. do it. Um, know your options and be prepared to let go of option A and then be yes, prepared to and let it's go often, of option B. Yeah. You know, Nick Maynard said, uh, one of his things is, you know, hey, if I get in a really bad place, the best option may not be to land, it's to fly somewhere else, yeah. you know, go somewhere else, yeah. deal with it for the moment, you know, stay yeah. high if you can. Yeah. And uh, rather than exposing yourself to, for example, more more valley winds or yeah. more of the gust front, you know, it's often better to stay above that yeah. stuff yeah. and just yeah. go top land, go somewhere yeah. somewhere else. Yeah. Wow. And did that change things for you at all? I mean, did it? Did it? Were you then kind of? I mean, I'm sure before then you were completely fired up about flying. You're 15 yeah. years old. You don't think you can yeah. die. You know, nothing's yeah. going to happen to a 15 year old. Um, did that kind of? Whoa! Wait a minute. Did it change your? Great question. Yeah. Well, in 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 hindsight, it was one of the one of the elements that that added to my decision to switch to paragliding. Actually, Um, and and you're right in your assumption that being like a a 15 year old guy flying for three years, I had not seen much, but I had seen some accidents already happening also up close so yeah it was it was one of the things that planted like this little seed in my mind i've been flying for i think it was like 10 years after this incident happened i i kept on flying but um it it did not change things like uh in a huge way but it put something in motion yeah Mm. Mm. yeah and then did your dad switch over to paragliding as well or is he still hang gliding no, we switched together. You switched Another together. F- 
Yeah, that's another fun fun story because I got deeper into the into the hang gliding. One of the things I did is I got uh, I became part of the support crew for the um, uh, the Dutch Open competition, uh, which was usually organized together with British pilots, like a, a competition somewhere in the Alps, British and Dutch pilots participating. Uh, and I was one of the start officials. This was I think around two thousand six or something. 2006, 2007. Uh, I was also um, some days I was a retrieve driver. Some days I was a starting official for the for the competition, the hang gliding competition. And my dad came to visit me because he was on a, like a camping trip with my mom. Uh, and the conditions were not great to launch, so we we had like a, a long halt. Um, and at the other side of the mountain was somewhere in Italy, Monte Cucco maybe. Um, there were paragliders flying. You know, paragliders until that moment in time where like, well, we did not say it out loud, but they, they were like far <laughs> inferior naturally. Yeah. 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 Cold Be air balloons. Yeah. They were like, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we really, and I'm almost ashamed to say it, but maybe it's good to say it out loud. You know, I, we were looking down on them. Like yeah. they were, they were slow. It was dangerous because they could collapse. And we had all these like really, we had these I images think that was in pretty widely held and probably pretty legitimate. Yeah, Believe some then. I mean, some pretty legitimate and most not at all uh, yeah. ill-informed, so to speak. But that was our mm. perspective, and we thought, let's go watch these fuckers. Let's see <laughs> what they what they are up to. We sat down there on that mountain, and we saw them like inflate their wing, and do a few steps, and then put it back on the ground, and then it, mm. it happened. It happened a few times, and like. <laughs> <laughs> our mind was like blown because suddenly we realized you only launch a paraglider when it's actually flying. You have mm. a go, no go decision, which you make if you do a proper takeoff, of course, um, which you make when you have control authority over the glider, which was so fundamentally different from what we had experienced with hang gliding. What was the cause of my accident actually that we, we, they got a newfound respect in that in that instant and and we saw these guys like launching making nice takeoffs making average takeoffs and also aborting takeoffs and that opened our mind to like the beauty of paragliding mm. and then at that point in time we we told each other you know um let's give this a try if this is something that we have not seen all these years uh, maybe we've been blind to other aspects of the sport as well which was true and we've been doing it like parallel for like three, four years. We've been flying hang gliders and learning to fly the paraglider. And then the, uh, the transition to paragliding came very natural. It was mainly founded uh, for, by two things. Uh, one, uh, safety, because by that point in time, we've been flying hang gliders for, for 15 years. Well, I should speak for myself, but the same thing goes for my dad. Um, we came to the conviction that paragliding actually was safer than hang gliding. Why is that the speed? Well, it's it's um, it's speed. Maybe it's basic physics. You know, do you mm. want to go seventy kph with your head forward, or do you want to go thirty five kph with your feet forward? Now um, wait a minute. Want versus should you is a different yeah, thing. Yeah. To me, to me, flying seventy k an hour prone like a bird that sounds pretty sexy. I it like is it. terribly sexy. The feeling yeah. that you have 
uh, with a hang glider um, when you when there's no care in the world so you're not launching uh, you're not landing uh, and you're not in difficult conditions it's it's awesome it can be a little bit better than on a, on a paraglider I should be yeah that's mm. It's my experience with it. The the, yeah. the sensation of being a bird, being able to like get it into a, a real nose dive yeah. without spiraling. That's that's an awesome sensation. You know, yeah, wanna... w- watching watching these guys do the whole ground effect thing too when they you know, when they're coming in at hundred yeah. k an hour and just oh, I love man, that, that sensation of of landing with 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 the wing making like a spot landing with a hang glider. That's oh. um, I, I still get excited and happy about that. Uh, that's a stressful thing for many hang gliders, by the way. But I always loved landing with the hang glider. So yeah, it, it has its beauties. Uh, it has its beautiful parts for sure. Do you, yeah. Do you guys still do you do you still fly hang gliders? Do you and your dad? Nope. Or did, was nope. it just the nope. transition nope. there for a few years? And then we had this few transition years, and then we um, uh, we sold our uh, we sold our gliders and have been flying solely uh, paragliders. So, but yeah, the, the safety aspect, it's, it's like a kinetics thing, you know, accidents, unfortunately, they do happen. I believe you should do anything to, to prepare yourself in, in, in that way that you reduce the chance of them happening and you reduce the effects of when something bad happens. But the basic physics come down to the, um, yeah, hitting the ground with 70 kilometers per hour with your head first or 35 on average, of course, with your feet yeah. forward. Yeah, the, the chances, I think, are just better. And I know there are many people that would love to debate me on this, and they do that all the time, the hang glider pilots. But, hey, that, that's uh, I've seen too many accidents. Yeah, it's a hard, It's I, I think it's a hard thing now to scrub data from because the numbers are the so numbers, skewed. It's, it's really skewed. tough now. I mean, obviously, yeah. paragliding on the face of it looks way more dangerous but that's because there's way more people doing it and yeah. so yeah uh, i think it's it is pretty tricky to delineate all that if numbers. you look at the statistics i'm i'm sure that uh on on average paragliding is uh less safe because the barrier to entry to paragliding is way lower um yeah, the like expenses Russ are said, lower it's, it, yeah it's so easy to fly a paraglider it's so hard to fly it well um, yeah this yeah. one that I, yeah. I kind of yeah yeah uh, so I have all I have great respect for for hang glider pilots uh, and so and this was just a, a personal choice you know after seeing a lot of accidents mainly uh, on takeoff with the hang glider so that was the safety aspect and then came the practicality aspect for us you know when you uh, go fly cross country and I'm not talking about a competition but just for fun you go fly cross country with a hang glider it's so much hassle. Yeah, um, there are logistical challenges. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's it's and and that's that's the um, and then added to that, but this this is something that we discovered later. You know, you you can't ground handle a hang glider, and the the entire ground handling aspect. Uh, I'm I'm a great fan of dune soaring with the paraglider as well. You know, dragging your your feet or your hand through the through the sand. That's 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 awesome to, to do with a paraglider. You can just land anywhere, land on a slope, land somewhere on top of a mountain, go go um, make a full bivax. All those things are completely out of reach for hang glider pilots. Do a do do a hike and fly. Yeah, yeah. The hike and fly aspect is is and it's also it's it's been. I, I think this is the new wave of of paragliding. I mean, this was something that was incredibly niche. When yeah. I got into bivvies, uh, you know, and now it's, I mean, that's the number one question I get is yeah. about bivy gear and light wings. And, you know, the X Alps has really, and then all these other races that are, 
there's a million of them now and it's it's really I kind of it, it's exciting it's super yeah. exciting and you're right that's logistically more challenging there are hang gliders that will say they could do it uh you know and they've 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 got they've got cool little uh carts that they've worked yeah. out and you know yeah. lighter weight stuff it's pretty it's it's pretty neat but yeah when it comes down to it it's it's awful nice to just put it all in a bag put it on yeah. your back and and I, lo- I love the, the mobility aspect, just being able to take off yeah. and land virtually anywhere that adds so much to the to the experience, which to me is it's not just the flying. It's not just uh, crossing distance. It's just being being part of nature, enjoying yeah. myself, pushing my own boundaries, uh, having fun by myself and with others. Uh, yeah, the entire lifestyle around it. Yeah. So that I asked transition. you. I asked you about what was it like for your dad to yeah. get you into it. You know, how old's your dad? That's a great question. I think he just turned sixty-four. Yeah. Oh, geez, he's young. Well, yeah. But I was going to say that. Let's reverse that. What's yeah. it like for you? You've been flying twenty-seven years. Uh, yeah. You've seen it all. You've instructed. Uh, we're we're going to get into your project here in a bit, but no problem. Um, you also know how dangerous this is. What's yep. that like for? I mean, I I used to watch my dad get into sailing when he was at basically your dad's age, and you know, let's just face it, older people don't learn as fast. And you know, he's been doing it a long time, so he's probably fine. But you know, we are more brittle. We aren't as you know, we don't learn things nearly as well as we get older what's it like for you to watch him now do you worry about him or is he not at all yeah sometimes sometimes i worry about him yeah yeah yeah, yeah the, the the main thing is that we we are a lot alike but we uh there, there are also differences in how we approach stuff you know he has he has really quite binary approach to everything in life it's either horrible or it's fantastic and and for me there i'm more kind of a gray zone guy that i'm trying to <laughs> You know, I see you laughing. Yeah, I'm, and and this this led us to have um, some very so how shall I put it very interesting conversations. One of the rules, yeah. one of the rules that we have when we go fly together, when one of us thinks the conditions are not suitable to go fly, we both decide not to go. Mm, that's a smart one. So like uh, like a sort of buddy system. And that has uh, saved us from a lot of stupid uh, flying decisions. One of our most stupid flying decisions, I made a YouTube video about that as well, when we almost got sucked into a huge conversion, converging cloud. At that day, we both thought it would be a great idea to go fly, which it was not. But yeah, um, seeing him go through um, through his paces, you know, he, he. of course, he's been flying for a long time as well. Uh, he started before me, so he's he's been there, done that, uh, and at the same time, not got the T-shirt. You know, it's it's we keep have this, we keep having this mindset that when you think you understand flying, that you know it all, that's a great point in time to stop flying because then you're gonna become very un- unsafe to yourself and to others. So. Mm. We, we, know, um, we know enough to know what we don't know, what we can't do. Um, and we keep running into our own limits and we, we, we keep, we, we are a mirror for, for each other in, in that. We keep reflecting on that. And sometimes I tell him that you, you should not do this or that because of this and that reasoning. Uh, and, and he does the same in, in my direction. So, yeah. Wow, what a special relationship. I mean, to have, it, it's, it almost sounds like you've got this, 
mentor student that's both ways. And yeah. It's really nice. It's nice to have a touching stone, isn't it? To just it is. Hey, Dad, it what is. do you think? Yeah, uh, it is. It, it it's it's something that I wish that everyone has. Of course, you don't have to have have, have a have a dad or a mom or a sibling or whatever for that. You can if you have a, a proper equal relationship with another pilot, a buddy of yours, preferably, you can have that. And if you have that transparency and you're willing to to tell the other person, I think you're uh, you're doing this for the wrong reasons. Um, then you have a really essential conversation going that helps you fly safer and with more fun eventually. Yeah, interesting. Tell me about your instructing. You you got into instructing a while back. Yeah. Is that, and where, and where is home base for you? Well, I live in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands. Yeah. Um, so I have my business um, here as well. Uh, but I consider the, uh, the Austrian Alps my home base. Yeah. Is that because of proximity? That's because uh, I learned to fly over there and I, I love flying over there, uh, the entire mm. Alps region. I, I go to Italy, I go uh, for, the, for the Dolomites, uh, I've flown in Switzerland, Austria a lot of times, but also in France, went to Morocco, a lot of countries over the world. But the, the Alps, I, m- like the vast majority of the weeks I've been flying, because then of course it becomes like a flying holiday, you know, you go to the Alps for one, two weeks and multiple times per year. Yeah, for me, it feels like coming home when I'm there. And that's the mm. way most Dutch pilots that learn like mountain flying with a paraglider, well, we don't have any mountains here. I believe our highest mountain is like 60 meters high. So yeah, we, we, we get in our car uh, and we drive to, to the Alps. It's like a one day drive. If you put pedal to the metal, uh, you can do it in two days, but most people drive in one day and uh, then you're uh, in the Alps, great flying, great people. Yeah. So that feels like my home base. Mm. And, and boss, you've got pretty good dune soaring there, right? Near Amsterdam. Is that, yep. do I have that right? Okay. Yep. Yep. Within uh, 20 minutes, I'm on the beach and when the winds are, uh, well, facing the shore northwesterly, we can do hours of, of, of dune soaring. That's, of course, what we can do. No mountain flying in the Netherlands, but we can do towing. So winch flying, ground-based winch flying, uh, and we can do the uh, the dune soaring thing. So, that, yeah, that's that's awesome. That's one of the things that I got into right after taking my first steps with paragliding. You know, I learned to fly from a Dutch school in the Alps. And after a few weeks of training, I also uh, started learning dune soaring, in which there was like no official training program. You just find a pilot that's a little bit worse than you in dune soaring and uh, see what you can make of it. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Do you uh, do you find that the dune soaring is a good way to kind of brush off the cobwebs before you go to the Alps? Or how do you, you know, I would imagine there's pretty long periods where you're not getting, you know, thermal flights and, you know, heading to the Alps in March can be pretty spicy yeah how do you how do you tackle that or how do you how do i imagine it's often a group of you guys that goes down together and you know you have a week or two weeks together um yeah i I think this is something that spanks a lot of people you know you're just you're not really you're not really back in the saddle and going to fly in the spring this is good just a good subject for right now because it's spring we're we're heading into that season this is uh this is also uh but we'll get into that later. That's also one of the main reasons I started doing with my company what I'm doing now, what I'm offering to the to the market, to the pilots. But it's something that happens worldwide, as, as you say. When the season ends, it takes a few months before the next season begins. And in that downtime, uh, yeah, what can you do? You can read books, you can watch movies, you can maybe do a little bit of 
in, in our case in Holland, you can do a little bit of, of towing, even though in, in winter, usually due to like wind conditions, the conditions are, are, are uh, less often okay to go fly uh, at the winch. And you can do dune soaring, but you know, brushing off the, brushing off the webs at the dunes as a preparation for the mountains, in my opinion, these skills are so different. Mm. You know, the thing you can practice at the dunes uh, are mainly like uh, technical skills, like handling your grounder, like handling your glider in strong wind, mm. um, making uh, making a takeoff. But after you've you've done that, yeah, what what else is there? You can practice a bit of turns, the the specifics of dune soaring, like picking the right line, how to cross behind a building, how to cross a gap in a dune, how. How, how high can I go? How far back can I go? How, uh, where is the lifting area? All these like technical things that they are all not, there's not much overlap with mountain flying and, and dune soaring in, in my experience. Mm. I do, I do. What I do like about it is the high wind aspect and you're still, yeah. you know, like you said, knowing how far back, how far up, you know, where is it dangerous if you go back and land in the lee? Yeah. You know, these are things that come in awfully handy uh, in yeah. the mountains because you can yeah. kind of visualize the air. I think I think a lot of people that don't spend a lot of time in high wind scenarios, especially in a place like the dunes where it's relatively safe. I mean, I know accidents happen everywhere, but boy, you learn a lot doing that. Yep. And it's, yep. you know, I, I use that kind of skill because I, I'm, I'm properly in the mountains. I don't have places like that, but I, I always try to spend a lot of time, especially when I'm training for the X-Ups in places like that, because it, it, it really does, it can transfer in, in, in ways where, you know, when you've suddenly got to stick it in on a top landing or something, it can be, okay, these are wins that I have dealt with before yep. I, I yep. understand what they do i understand yep. how the road yep. works and you can it helps. Yep. anytime you can visualize something that's invisible is good yeah yeah you're absolutely right there uh it's really the element of the uh, of the dealing with strong wind that that has a strong overlap yeah for sure um on the other hand like visualizing uh the rotor and stuff when we go dune soaring we never ever ever go behind the dune or into the rotor so it well, there are, mm. of course, there are two classes of Just pilots, as we always say. Yeah. Okay. People that have been blown over the dune and people that still have to get blown over the dune. Those are the two categories <laughs> those that have, we have. Those who will. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but once you've had that happen to you once, and of course it's happened to me, uh, you, you know where not to go and how to deal with it. So that's something that is like baked into your mind. And, um, and then, yeah, the, the added value of dealing with high winds, maybe dealing with crosswind, what, what that does to a turn. You know, we have, we have very specific incidents happening with dune soaring. Those are very different incidents than we see happening with mountain flying. Mm. People that like spin their glider on crosswind uh, soaring, uh, that's one of the major causes of uh, serious accidents. Airspeed. This is a big Airspeed. one. I, I, I think that this is uh, this is where ridge soaring pilots can really get in trouble in the mountains because they're used to these low ground speeds, high air speeds, but low ground speeds because of the wind. Yeah. So suddenly they take that to where there's very little wind, and forget about wing pressure. Um, yeah. And and like you said, then you can spin or stall super yep. easily. Yeah. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a big one. This is yeah. you just said visualization. That this is a great transition to 
VR. Tell me about your project and because this is something I've been learning and trying to practice more and more. I even did a podcast recently yeah, on just a visualization that was a great one, actually. Yeah, I, I think this is important for for us as a community to spend more time doing it. Mitch Riley was the first one to really make me think hard about this. Is that you know mm-hmm. we can we can learn a ton from and it's the, I think and you can back me up on this if I'm right or not, but I think the science has proven that it's almost the same in terms of learning, visualizing is damn near as as good as actually doing it. Um, in terms of our, our brains don't know the difference. Is that right? That's, that's exactly true. That's, that's like the, the physiology behind it for our brains. It's, it's no different. If you actually jump over a wall or visualize that you're jumping over a wall, and there are still so many people out there that think, oh yeah, just think of me jumping over a wall. Uh, okay, and now I don't have to do it in real life anymore. Hmm. That's not the case, of course. Right. But it helps you build confidence. It helps you, it, it actually helps you give your muscles the impulses at the right point in time when you're actually doing it in real life. Mm-hmm. This is something I'm, I'm a firm believer in science. It's always nice to claim science says something but there's a lot of science that says it works this way so i'm completely with you on that and i've seen the uh, examples of that many times in practice and of course it's also not for nothing that all the professional athletes in any kind of sport they do a lot of visualization yeah because it works yeah this was something that came up again and again and again i read a ton of books going into this year's race about you know sports psychology and training and and you know not nothing specific to paragliding but it doesn't matter it's this you know basketball football baseball doesn't matter what you're doing it's all and they you know the the best of the best they all talk about how much they practice in the mind so yeah i know literally nothing about virtual reality i've never put the goggles on i challenge you to uh you know, articulate what it is you're doing to try to fill this visualization gap. And it's, it's pretty exciting. Well, the interesting thing is, Gavin, actually, that there are many people that have had a virtual reality experience. And because of that, think that they know what virtual reality is and what it can do for them. Um, They are actually a harder group to talk to than the uh, more difficult audience than you are. So I'll try to, um, uh, I'll of course keep this in mind. We were talking about the hang gliding. And at that point in time, I was still in uh, what you'd call high school. And I thought I'm nearing the end of high school. I love flying my hang glider. So I should become a pilot. At that point in time, that seemed very logic to me. Like flying hang glider is fun, so flying jumbo jets is fun so i applied for their training program the, the klm flight academy and i uh, i got admitted into that training program uh did my theoretical the, the ground school stuff for over for around a year uh, and then i moved to uh fort pierce in florida for the uh, the practical training during that training program, I got involved with simulators a lot, uh, which is, has been normal for decades in commercial aviation, uh, in military aviation. They use simulators to train you for basic maneuvers. They use simulators to um, make sure you get to the level of, of, of like what we call a type rating, learning a specific new aircraft. Um, when you do your 
uh, your prof checks every half year, year, you do that in a simulator. Uh, why? Because visualizing or actually recreating a situation and then dealing with it, it's just as good as the real thing. Now, when I started uh, teaching paragliding 10 years ago, I thought, why, why is there no way we can learn as paragliding pilots to fly as they do it in, in like commercial aviation. Why are there no simulators for this? And I started asking around and I got differing answers, but they were all along the line of, do you have any idea how expensive such a simulator would be? And no, flying is something that you can, flying a paraglider is something you can only learn actual, only uh, when you're out here in the, in, in the air. And I, di I didn't believe any of that. I think that there's just not been anyone that has put all the pieces together and make something that is um, uh, that is usable and that is uh, that has the potential to be embraced by a worldwide audience. So that's what I um, uh, I started envisioning. But I'm not like a super technician. Around eight years ago, I like st I started writing uh, a syllabus, uh, training uh, plans for if I would have that simulator, how what would it what should it be able to do, how should it work, and how will I teach with that? And from that, I, I like distilled a couple of hardware requirements, and I started looking for someone that could help me make that dream become a reality. But what I could not do was like make the aerodynamic models of a paraglider. Uh, I could do part of the hardware design, but, but for the other parts, I just was looking for someone. So at every event I went through, uh, even completely paragliding unrelated, I started telling people my dream. I started telling them, I am looking for someone that has specific knowledge in simulator design that can help me build a paragliding simulator. A guy told me, yeah, my brother is a professional simulator designer and he's also getting into paragliding. Maybe you should meet him. Perfect. And for the past uh, two years, he's been my uh, business associate. It's the, it's, his name is Hans Jorde. I also mentioned him in, uh, in one of my videos in which I introduced the simulator. And he's like the, the, the technical brains behind how, how this simulator works and why it responds as, as realistically to the pilot's inputs and to the conditions that we simulate with it as it does now. So what, what the simulator is, actually it, it is a computer-generated environment. So vis visually, it's the same as being in your cockpit, I guess. Actually, yeah, okay. it's, ex it's exactly oh, the same. Of course, the difference is that it is a computer-generated image, so it does not have the um, exact same detail uh, as the real world. It's, it's not like indistinguishable from the real world, but it doesn't have to be. Right. Gotcha. It doesn't have to be. Do you have brake handles and the whole thing? Yeah. I mean, yeah. You're, you're yeah. flying so a paraglider. We, yeah. That's what okay. we uh, what what we recreated. So we have like a setup that's an H-shaped frame with risers hanging from that and brake toggles. And these brake toggles they're connected to sensors, just as the entire frame. Um, so you can steer the paraglider in the simulator the same as you would steer a real paraglider, namely using weight shift uh, and Ooh. using your brake input. Uh, then of course we have the speed system. So do people sit there and move around? Is yeah. They, ah, yeah. It's hysterical. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> check out my, my, my video on the YouTube channel I, uh, there's some footage of people flying in there and it's in it's insane it's it, it's truly insane we've been working with this for two years now um, and when we did the first like closed alpha testing with a with a group of pilots all under NDA they were amazed they were amazed that they within a few minutes they felt like they were actually flying a paraglider and of course there was still a lot of fine-tuning to be done 
it's uh, it's come such a such a long way what we can do with technology one of the main defining things that makes paragliding different fr- from like other air sports or general aviation is that you're completely out in the open facing mm-hmm. the elements and that like things as estimating height and distance and speed for when you're trying to like stick a proper landing those are very important they are actually way more important than they are for someone flying um, a general aviation airplane so we really try to tailor the simulator to that like simulating different kinds of trees and houses to have we recreated a couple of landing fields from the alps to just give give ourselves a challenge can we make a one-on-one replica in the simulator of say greifenburg which is a, is a, a known landing field near the the weissensee known flying area in, in austria the field where i actually learned to fly with the dutch school uh, airtime and i thought let's Let's recreate this to the finest detail possible and see what happens when we train people to land in the simulator. And one of the first pilots that I had fly this, uh, this landing field was my dad, actually. And I knew he was notoriously bad in landing there when the wind was a bit cross and strong and gusty because he'd always end up in the cornfield next to the landing field. So I thought, let's recreate these conditions in the simulator, not tell him anything except that these were the conditions, put him in a spot where he could fly his entire U-shaped traffic pattern, and let's just see what happens. And I kid you not, he landed in the cornfield next to the landing. And he yelled at me, this is always what happens to me in real life when I'm flying here in these conditions. I said, yes. Then now we have an accurate simulator. The essence of this is how do people learn? And in general, you can see this um, in its most purest form when when watching your four-year-old. You know, I have little kids too, four and six. When you see little kids learn something, they try something. And then there is a certain outcome. And then they try something else. And then there is usually a very different outcome. Um, And then... Like mentally speaking, they build this relation between cause and effect, action uh, and result. And that's, uh, that's a great way to learn. And we've built all kinds of interesting concepts about the, uh, around this, be getting older with experience and, and stuff. But in the basics, it still comes down to what do you do and what is the effect on uh, what is the end result? Now, in paragliding, that's something that is notoriously difficult because when someone is learning how to fly a paraglider, for instance, you're learning how to make a proper U-shaped landing pattern and make a spot landing, you get some uh, instructions over the radio, you're on the ground, your instructor takes you apart, gives you some more tips, maybe say, Gavin, you should make an extra turn, uh, make an extra circle next time because you were way high. Now, when I'm looking at a situation that goes for most of the flying areas worldwide, if everything goes super smooth and super fast, it will take you at least one and a half hours until you're ready to make your next landing that day. If you even make two flights that day, because you have to pack your glider after getting this feedback from the instructor, you maybe have to wait for the van and the other um, uh, the other students. You have to drive up the mountain or go with a cable car or whatever. You have to unpack your glider. You have to wait in line to launch. You maybe have to wait for weather. And then let's say it's one and a half hour later, you're ready to land again. The conditions will never be the same as they were one and a half hours ago. Mm. 
But your instructor told you, well, you should make that extra turn. Well, is, is that a good decision at this point in time? Maybe you should not make an extra turn. Maybe you made an extra turn like five minutes ago because you did some other exercises. So what I'm trying to, to say with this is the, the relationship between what a uh, pilot does or does not do and the outcome in this example of the landing, it's very vague. There are mm. a lot of things uh, that have influence on the outcome of the flight other than what the pilot does. Even if the pilot would be able to follow all the instructions to the letter, the thing um, that makes it very difficult to learn such a skill, and the same goes for thermaling or dune soaring or whatever, is that there might there may be a different wind. You know, there yeah, are like a million. Every flight's completely different. Yeah, every flight's completely different, and of course that's the that's the charm and the and the beauty of of flying as well. That's something that I embrace as well. But from a from purely from a, a didactics perspective, from trying to learn and trying to um, get new skills or keep skills current, that's actually a very bad thing. Mm. So what, what simulators do in general, and, and ours in, in, in specific, uh, is that we are able to bring you as a student into the exact same conditions, time and time again. And when you notice that you started uh, high on, uh, on your downwind, then I can ask the student, well, what would you do again next time? Yeah, maybe maybe I should make another circle in my, in my in my positioning area. Okay, well let's just rewind. Then we rewind, put the student back at the beginning of the traffic pattern. Okay, make an extra circle. See what happens. Oh no, now 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 I'm way too low because I I I lost like 30, 40 meters extra. Okay, so making an extra circle was not the decision. How else can you fix this? Yeah, maybe. Uh, uh, maybe I should not make that extra circle and just uh, extend my downwind a little bit. Well, okay, give it a try. See what happens. Hey, now I made a spot landing. Okay. Wow. So you can just totally short circuit the time it takes to, you know, you don't have to pack it up, get in the van, go to the top. You know, you can just rewind a little bit. Let's do it yeah. again. Re yeah. Rewind. That's amazing. That's, 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 that's the beauty. And that's not something I invented, by the way. This is something that is that is... Um, that is typical for simulator instructions. Yeah, yeah we yeah. just built one uh, specifically for paragliding and paramotoring in which we do this. And we tailored our teaching methods to this. Of course, that's the beauty of paragliding as well. Sure. Being in nature, being involved in this process. Uh, and I don't want to take anything away from this, but just from a learning perspective, the huge limiting factor in paragliding is the weather uh, and all the hassle around it. Um, and then there's the, the third point of, of focus. Where we, I have seen this happen with hundreds of students. They're about to get licensed. They're, about, they're at the level that they can get a license to fly without an instructor. But usually for them, the problem is still um, making a, a proper landing uh, approach pattern and uh, sticking it in, in different conditions. Mm -hmm. And if you can just zoom in, not just on the landing, but on what that specific pilot needs to work on, because these can be different things. I noticed I've been teaching with the simulator now for uh, a little over half a year. And what I've noticed is that like uh, looking, the looking technique is actually very important. Now you're moving forwards with roughly, if there's, if there's no wind, you're moving forwards with roughly 36 kilometers per hour relative to the ground. Um, that means if you have not looked in a few seconds, you're like dozens of meters further down the track. So when you're flying downwind, 
you have to look at the area that you want to land that where maybe the spot is that you want to want to aim for and that's something that we can train to the uh, in a lot of detail in the simulator for some people it's, it's this looking technique they're, they just keep watching where they're going they don't turn their head a lot we see that a lot happening but also the combination between uh, leaning into the turn and using the proper amount of brake input for some people it's it's just that for others it's the decision making uh, even uh, when we crank up the conditions make the wind more gusty uh, make it variable in in direction make it from a suboptimal angle have some obstacles uh, you see people get make really from a perspective of an experienced pilot make really stupid decisions but that's just because their brains are not able to process it all yeah sure uh, you, you turn which is the normal. complicated yeah which is normal too. in learning and, yeah. and when you do this when flying actual and flying outside there's just this one instance in which you get a try in these specific conditions and that never comes back so when you talk about it with your instructor what i've seen happening as being an instructor myself is that i ask my students well, I don't ask it this way, but I, I'm thinking, why did you almost end up in that tree? You know, if it's someone that's that's been making five flights, that's my responsibility. It's always my responsibility, by the way. But when it's someone that's close to the level of being a, a self-supporting pilot, you give them way more margin as an instructor to make mistakes. Um, and you only intervene uh, when safety is at, at risk to make them learn those lessons. And what I see happening all the time and they do it involuntarily, maybe subconscious, is that they make excuses. I ask them, why did, why did you almost skim that tree? Or why, why, did, why did this um, spot landing not work out for you? Why did you ha have an overshoot of 100 meters? And they come up with all kinds of reasons. Yeah, the wind shifted a little bit. Uh, there was this pilot that, uh, that, that crossed me that I had not anticipated. Um, uh, yeah, I got sink on my, on my base leg with a lot of sinking air or it was rising air. I've had that happen in the simulator as well. So I asked them, why did you not stick this landing? And they came up with these reasons. And I, I, and I tell them, come, come look at the instructor station. And I show them my monitor and I say, look at your exact track log because, because we can like rewind it second by second. You can see the exact wind conditions. You can see what was where and when. There is no gusty wind now. Mm. The wind is laminar. Mm. There, there is no sink. There mm. are no thermals. This mm. was all you. So I also, I also call it like the ego destructor. It's, so it's you're a really teaching people to take ownership of, of where they are and how capable they are. Yeah, but not because because I think they're assholes. Um, no, but, no, but, no, no, but no, you're, no. But you can say no. This actually was poor piloting. This wasn't. Yeah, the this was poor piloting, and and yeah. this this is something that instructors worldwide run into, um, because there is always this this unknown. As an as an instructor, you you know that there was no sinking uh, air or rising air or, or whatever, but when the student is convinced that there was. It's like the end of discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no that, well, that's yeah. why. It wasn't yeah. me. It was that. That, yeah. that was why. And yeah, maybe I should have turned a little earlier or maybe I should have done this. But the um, the inf there's, n there's not enough ownership and that's that limits the um, learning potential of the student. And in the simulator, we turn this around. So uh, we literally try to fry your brain with decision making in rapid succession and help you see the effects of what you do on the outcome of your flight. And I've been talking about 
uh, about uh, landing now for a while. But the same goes for thermaling. You know, when I when I practice when I teach people thermaling in the simulator, a lot of pilots they uh, when we crank up the wind, they get blown out of the thermal by 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 the wind. And the first response, as is in real life, yeah, the thermal it suddenly vanished. No, dude, <laughs> you just got blown out of the thermal. And this, these, these are like, if you can't, in, re, in actual flying, it's very difficult to uh, really connect to the brain of the student um, because there are always like these, these, these inner convictions that keep telling them, no, this is also what happened. And it, it, it was not all me. And uh, even the students that are very uh, eager uh, to learn, to develop, to get the most out of it, they also have their own convictions of what was going on um, and we, we can just take that all, all away and, and, and make it a very pure experience in which there's a one-on-one -on -one relationship between what the pilot does and what the outcome is. Yeah, that's fascinating. So you can, so, so take me through that. I'm in, I'm in the simulator, I'm coming in for land and you can just dial up the crosswind. Boom. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I, how do I, I sense that? How do I, I just, I can, I can tell by the motion of the glider or I've got a cockpit with some instruments or because I, I don't feel it, you know, yeah. like you would normally kind of feel no, it. No, you're, you're right. We, the simulator that we are currently operational with, it's, it's, it's an input device. So it transfers what the pilot does to the simulator and then the wing in the simulator responds to that. Of course, it okay. all goes instantaneously, but that's sequentially what happens. Um, so when, when you lean to the right, the glider starts uh, going to the right. And when you break, uh, it, it also has effect on the, um, on the wing. And the, the feedback that we have on the brake lines, normally when, when the wind uh, is going over your wing, you can feel that in your brake lines. You can feel that in the harness, of course. We, we don't have that yet. So the uh, brake pressure that you feel, it's now simply being caused by elastic bands that you're pulling against. So more pressure down here is not because of some aerodynamic principle, but it's just because there's more tension on the rubber band. Okay. But the next version of the simulator, which we already have in a prototype version operational, it, there is no rubber band, but there are like servo motors um, that translate mo movement of the wing to the pilot's brakes. So I've been practicing in that. We've been flying spirals with it. We can go up to like seven Gs and you really feel these engines like pulling your hands up or you want to keep them down. You really feel this. In it's Crazy. it's awesome. And it, it, it adds another level of um, uh, immersion. Yeah. But it is not strictly necessary for most exercises. So you ask me, how, how does it go? Um, you have an, um, a simulated instrument. You have a, a simulated... Uh, or use a Syride instrument for that. And we have a simulated Syride Cisnov. We have a little cooperation with, with these guys. We have a, a, a Syride Cisnov, uh, which you can see your ground speed, you can see your magnetic heading, uh, you can see your vertical speed and your altitude. Um, and of course you see the landscape moving. So you have the perspective change. Um, there's a fan blowing air against you to have the, uh, the sensation of, uh, of flight and, and orientation. In our next version, that's what we call an active fan. So the fan is also controlled by the airspeed um, with your which you're flying with. So if you're like making Crazy. dolphin moves, you feel. Wow! So if you know you take you take an X Alps pilot, you know, and put him in your system, somebody who's been flying twenty years and done a ton of comps, versus a P two, you know, twenty five hour. 
is it just is is the XOPS pilot going to get into your system and just crush it? I mean, in other words, do they? Can you, given someone's history, okay, that they they're just going to be totally way more natural. You you can just tell absolutely. They're, they're, okay, absolutely. so it's so it's absolutely. very relative to the real world. Absolutely, yeah. There, uh, oh wow, we've we've had hundreds of pilots in it now, um, and. Uh, the general consensus is that it is extremely realistic, both in how it looks and especially in, in how it feels and how it responds. And I've had pilots of that 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 first group you spoke about, really extremely experienced people flying it and, and just yelling, I'm flying, I'm flying, what's happening? It's 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 like real flying. Wow. Um, yeah. There is not just a lot of potential, but the things that people learn, they can one-on-one put that into practice when they go fly. Mm. Um, So I adjusted our business model to that. And we're actually now the first, and for as far as I know, only paragliding training installation in the world that offers a result guarantee. So I tell my students, when you want to learn how to thermal better, you buy our thermaling package. It's usually three sessions of an hour, because we can just very specifically target what that pilot needs to learn to thermal better. For you, it will be something else than the next guy. And on average, people take three sessions to get up to the level that they can core a thermal uh, in different conditions, different kind of winds, different altitudes, that they know how to deal with close to the mountain, you make figure eights, and then all of a sudden you transition to making circles. All of these skills, you're guaranteed to possess them at the end of this training program. And if you don't, you get extra sessions for free. So you don't buy the experience, you buy the result. It's not, so it's more, it sounds like it's right now, at least it's more technique, not so much strategy. Is that right? Yeah. When we take it to three levels, like uh, technique, tactics, and strategy, it's at the tactics and technique level. Uh, I've had a very experienced uh, cross-country pilot flying in it. Um, and he said, well, I'm, I'm really missing the feedback of my glider. You know, he started right. steering by moving his brake inward, breaking the outermost part of his wing to turn more flat. That's something that we cannot do in the simulator yet. So if you move your hand vertically up or down or inward, doesn't make a difference for the amount of wing that you deflect. Such mm. subtle differences, of course, the, these are important for people at the at the top end spectrum, the, the top 1% of pilots. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this point in time, for the top 1% of pilots, of which you're one of them, obviously, the simulator is not that interesting um, because the things that you want to train, um, we can't simulate that yet. I'm targeting 80% of the world's pilot population, maybe something in the, the 15% above that, but I, I'm not aiming the simulator at the top 5% because when you are that good, um, I think you'll benefit most from actual flying. Boss, uh, tell me about your your company, Flight Coach, because we haven't we haven't talked about that. I'm very glad that you're asking me this because this is the main question that our school owners keep asking me about the um, the applicability, the usefulness of the simulator training in practice. We've been operational since uh, beginning of August last year, so no, there there's not like a, a heap of uh, data of Excel sheets that I can show you. But what I can share with you is the great stories and feedback that I get from all the students that have flown in the simulator and went flying outside again, went flying actual as we call it. 
to put what they learned in the simulator into practice. And the story that everyone tells me is identical. It helps hugely. A practical example of that is a student that came to me with a question. He said, boss, when I'm trying to dune soar, I can't fly longer than maximum 30 seconds or a minute because I keep bumming out. When I'm trying to make a turn, I leave the lifting area. And I'm also very afraid of being blown over. So how do I fix this? Because I've been practicing for days at the beach, even under supervision of an instructor, but it's not, it's not clicking in my brain. So we did a training uh, package of a few hours with the result guarantee. And even after the, uh, the second session, he was showing huge progression. We kept practicing the stuff, rewinding, changing the wind, changing the conditions, improving his turn coordination and uh, finding the ideal line. And then a few days later, uh, at the beginning of the evening, I got a phone call by a, a number that I didn't recognize. And as soon as I picked up, someone started yelling, started screaming in a very happy, frantic voice to me saying, yes, I finally did it. I just landed. I've flown for over two hours. And then and, and I asked him, Jos, is, is that you? And he said, yes, yes. Oh, sorry. I was, I was so into the, into the moment. But yeah, the training helped me to actually fly. And I've just done my first real soaring flight. Well, I was happy for him, um, but I'm also ha really happy about this as one of the many examples of what the simulator can add to practical flying. That's the whole idea, to help people sort out what the thing is that they need to learn at that point in time, to really focus and work on that and plant it as a, as a nugget in the brain um, that you can work with from there. For the next time you go flying, you, your brain recognizes the situation, thinks, oh, I've learned how to deal with this. So it's, it's really a huge boost or a huge accelerator for flying. That, that's the whole idea. That's the added value. And I have many more stories just like this one about thermaling and landing and making outlandings, making maneuvers. The, the feedback is huge. The feedback is real. Pilots are, are very happy uh, with it. You, you talk about future additions. Is this something, boss, that you could... Uh, are we going to see these in other parts of the world? Is this something Absolutely. kind of exportable? You know, it's the VR Absolutely. glasses. It's the it's the simulator. You know that you're sitting Absolutely. in with the. Yep. It is okay. It is. And then it you, is. And it's just a That's software it. update. I mean, uh, you know, for, like if I'm a school, which I'm not, but if I'm a school, and th this just sounds to me, this sounds amazing. I mean, what an incredible way to teach. So, or to add to the teaching that you need, you need the real experience too. Exactly. You can have this exactly. as a, like you said, to get more than six minutes a day of of landing. Yeah. Um, if I, if I buy this, can I just get the update for the, you know, the, eventually the thermals actually come off real, real triggers, whatever. I'm just making Absolutely. that up. But, Absolutely. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, that, the, 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 the thing I envisioned when I started with the simulator training pilots, because we have a simulator room now in Amsterdam, what I wanted to do is actually set up other schools, uh, flight parks for success. And I knew when I make a simulator that is great, I was already convinced that it was great because we've been testing for one and a half years with all levels of pilots. I knew that it did what it had to do. We were convinced that this simulator uh, would do great things for students and for people that are trying to keep current because we've been talking about st students now the whole time. But the big problem with the majority of pilots again is that they fly a few weeks per year and then they don't fly for a few months and their 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 currency it, it tanks yep. yeah yeah and like yeah and we need to get that back up um and and that's what the simulator can do as well but i thought 
I don't need to convince myself that this works. I need to convince school owners, um, flight park owners, whatever, that this is a, a teaching aid that they can use successfully to train their students, but also commercially, which is also commercially viable. It also needs to make money. So I thought that the best way to do this is to just start a simulator training facility, which I did here downtown in Amsterdam. And I just started experimenting with different kinds of business models. Looking how, what is a what is an, an average price that someone here from, well, people from Germany and Belgium and, and Holland in the simulator, uh, some from the UK as well. Uh, what are they willing to pay? What is this training worth? Because mm. at being an entrepreneur, you always think that your own product is going to be freaking awesome. But the best, the best test is uh, see what customers pay for it. How many refund questions you get, that sort of stuff. Mm. So, and then I started building a, 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 a case and um, I, I, have a lot, I have a lot of data. I know now what people are willing to pay these, uh, these fixed price um, uh, result guarantee training packages. They cost 649 euros. On average, people take three hours. Sometimes they need four. I've had no one that needed five hours, by the way. Wow. So on average, that makes me 220 euros per hour. And people throw the money at me, laughing. So happy that they could improve their skills this way. And I kept sending out the, this message in, into my network. And I've now found the first um, like business uh, customer, uh, a large flight school that also trains in the Alps. And we installed another simulator at their facility a month ago. And I'm currently training their instructors on how to teach with it. And my uh, and our vision, I should say, um, is that within a few years, um, in every country, there will be uh, one or more simulators. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, it's a riskless way to learn a really risky sport. I mean, that's why they have simulators. I'm, I've been thinking about this a lot lately that, you know, when I talk to people like you who have a commercial aviation background, uh, they're a bit baffled. You know, Stefan Bernard, a really high level he was just with me down at the at the world cup and you know he, he flew fighter jets you know in, the, in for germany and now he's flying for net net jet you know the private thing yeah and you know he he was baffled when he got into this sport as you were that they don't have more of this kind of checkbox type learning you know that, that you do this and it, it's it's a it's a step it's a process you can't just yeah. skip this stuff in general aviation you're you got passengers you, that you can't kill and uh yeah. Yeah. you know so he it sounds like this is a really good way to bridge the the gap you know that you're you're this you know you're talking about that this is maybe more applicable to the lower hour pilots you know the a b and c pilots and the ones that are you know weekend warriors that don't get the hours you know but we but every pilot has to go through that period well, yeah. let, 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 let me interrupt you there, there for a second. Not just the, the low airtime hour, uh, not just the low airtime pilots, but the, the pilots that really need to work on building their skills to get up to the, the level of flight. Yeah. yeah, but also learning how to thermal better, how to core thermal better so that you gain more altitude in the same amount of time. People that want to practice like things like maybe top landings, we're working on that as well, or hang landings, uh, slope landings. So I think that I'm really aiming at... 80 percent of the of of the population also people yeah. that have been flying with a license worldwide for many years um still have this currency problem that yeah. they fly a few weeks and then it 
our experience starts to to degrade. And if you're not careful, when you then at the end of a season, you're here. Let's visualize it as an eight. Uh, and at the beginning of the season, that degraded back to a four. And then during the season, you're learning a lot of things. And at the end of the season, you're at an eight. And at the beginning of next year, you're at a four again. Effectively, you're not progressing as a pilot. You've had a lot of fun. You've had a good time. You've been working on your hobby, but you're actually not learning. Everything mm. you learn, you just use to stay at this flat line. Yeah, this is a this is a an email I get a lot. I, I almost need an auto response for this one. You know, why does it take me longer to get good than the, the people that I see around me? And well, how many hours are you getting? <laughs> it's yeah, a pretty easy equation. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the people around you are getting more hours. I mean, there yeah. there is such thing as talent, of course, in this sport and background and what you've done. But you know, for them, they're. This is a big one. I, there's, and I say this all the time. I'm sorry, listener, to have to hear me say this again. But there's not really any shortcuts, you know. And there's not really nope. anything that replaces currency, except this kind of sounds like it might. It certainly helps. Well, I, I dare to say that this this is uh, as close to a shortcut as we can get. You still yeah. have to put in the time. Yep. Uh, you still have to. You still have to undergo the the. the, the <laughs> sounds horrible when I put it like this, but you still have to do the training. In a simulator, it's hard work. It's a. It, I always compare it to, like drinking the drinking lemonade versus drinking the syrup that lemonade is actually made from. Flying a simulator is drinking pure syrup. I can't teach people for longer than an hour because their brains are just fried. I can see that they're not processing anymore. Sure. But right. but I think it's huge that you that we can put the. Um, we can put the bottleneck in the teaching process uh, in the brain of the pilot instead of the, the conditions. You asked me earlier, Gavin, you, you, you asked me earlier, uh, how does it work? Can I, can I buy one? We're actually not, we're not selling them because it is something um, that also just requires a lot of support. And I'm not talking about tech support, uh, but I'm talking about really integrating a simulator into, let's say you're a school owner, into your training program that just requires a lot of experience with, with didactics and what part of your um, uh, actual training program can we take out and do in the simulator. But it also allows you to like add something on top of that, like the, the influx of new pilots. When we, when we are at parties, we're always the talk of the party, right? Oh, you're, you're, you're flying. I always wanted to do that. And most people that say that, they actually always wanted to do that. But the mm. entry barrier, even with paragliding, Jeez. is just too high. Yeah. This also works as lowering that entry barrier. Because when you want to have an experience with paragliding, now you have to like book a tandem flight. Well, then you have to show up at a certain point in time, pay a lot of money. Hopefully the conditions are okay with a simulator. We can get you like to 90% of the experience of making a real paragliding flight, maybe even more. That's so it's, you know, see that that's huge. That's fascinating. I, I've often wondered this about my peers and people here in Sun Valley are, you know, the people who live here are live here because of nature and the outside outdoors mm -hmm. and what's possible, you know, the ski touring and the mountain biking and all the things to go do. And I ski and mountain bike and do really fun things with a lot of people who are really capable. They know that I launch off a mountain and fly into Montana. You know, they've heard all the stories and stuff, and yet they have no interest in doing it. I mean, they have interest. Everybody wants to fly. Everybody wants to be a bird. But 
they're scared and the, and the barrier of entry is too high, you know, whether that yeah. be cost or, you know, just the, the, the weather, the, fear. the place, the gear, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the fear, know, all these things. So that's the fear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. That, that's really cool. That's a, yeah. I, I hadn't thought about that. As, and and as an because aspect. it has, because it has that many, um, because there are, are that many things that you can do with it, that you can use it to actually, as a school owner, like change your business model. Um, the the model that we have chosen uh, is that that it is is a subscription. It's a license uh, and rental subscription model. So you can rent a simulator starting from a few months up to longer periods of time, of course. Um, but since we expect people to start using it and keep using it. It's just a, it's a monthly subscription for which you get the complete hardware to use the simulator, but also our proprietary um, uh, models that we built for this, that are these paragliders that respond as close to real paragliders as it gets. You get the landscapes, the training areas, you get the syllabus on how to actually train pilots with the simulator. Of course, you get an operating manual and, and some of these things are also also need like specific advice on every school has a has a different way uh, of training their pilots. So sure. it's it's also a, 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 um, like like coaching or, or consulting that I do with the prospective business clients. Let's have a look at your syllabus. How do you use to teach? How can we integrate the simulator? How can we make sure that you get more new customers? How can we help your existing students progress faster? Um, so that's the model that we uh, that we chose, and yeah, it's it's available worldwide. And uh, anyone that's interested, uh, please let me know. Well, boss, fascinating stuff. Um, you must be a very busy person, and it's but this is this is terrific. I mean, what an what an amazing adjunct to uh, to this sport, and I can't. I'm excited to see where the future takes you as well with this. It's fantastic. So we will have all the links, those of you listening in the show notes for everything boss is talking about. Uh, thanks for sharing this journey with us and best of luck to you, buddy. This was, this was great. Thanks a lot. It was really great uh, talking to you. Thanks for your, uh, for your interest and your enthusiasm. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher, or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes cost so if you can support us financially all we've ever asked for is a buck a show and you can do that through a one-time donation through paypal or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out we put a new show out every two weeks so for example if you did a buck a show and every two weeks it'd be about 25 dollars a year so way cheaper than a magazine subscription and it makes all of this possible. I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people, and these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, 
You can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, We've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, little video casts that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us, then just let me know and I'll set you up with an account. Of course, that'll be lifetime. And hopefully you're being in a position someday to be able to support us. But you'll find all that on the website. Uh, All of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought Cloud-Based Mayhem merchandise, t-shirts or hats or anything, you should be all set up. You should have an account. You should be able to access all that bonus material now. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support. And we'll see you on the next show. Thank you.